Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. Secularism, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. By that, I don't mean that you and I will disagree about which countries are secular in the same way as we might disagree about which paintings are beautiful. Whichever way you look at it, France, the USSR, America, Turkey and India are, or were, all secular states. Rather, what I mean is that what you think of secularism will largely depend on who you are and where you stand. For many people, secularism is the political incarnation of fairness and equality. It means treating all people and groups the same, irrespective of what they believe. It means protecting minorities. It means valuing human rights and democracy, institutions with which it is often paired. For others, it is a policy of subtle and sometimes not so subtle oppression. It makes millions of people live divided and dishonest lives as it compels them to keep what is most important for them behind closed doors and to don a false persona whenever they're dealing with public issues. Its commitment to public reasoning, whatever that is, is effectively a ban on religious speech. And its commitment to value neutrality is little more than a sleight of hand. Wherever you stand on this debate, however, one thing is clear. Secularism is in crisis. The 20th century's most comprehensively secular state, the USSR, ended to the chorus of Polish trade unionists chanting, We want God. Both French and American secularism are coming under pressure from groups across society. And in Turkey and India, Those groups have gained the levers of power and are slowly dismantling secular states that are decades old. Recently, the political scientist and professor of international and comparative politics at the London School of Economics, Sumantra Bose, wrote a brilliant book on the past, present and future of secularism in India and Turkey. It's called Secular States, Religious Politics, and I'm delighted to be able to talk to Sumantra about it on the podcast. Sumantra, welcome to Reading Our Times. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's look at the history of secularism in Turkey and India before we turn to the current crisis. In Turkey, the story of secularism is completely tied up with Mustafa Kemal, known as Ataturk, and the reforms he made between about 1924 and 1937 at which point Turkey was declared a laicist state. Can you tell us a little bit about who Ataturk was and why he pursued those secularist policies? Well, Mustafa Kemal, who became known as 
Ataturk or father of the Turks from about 1934, so only in the last few years of his life, was in fact a career military officer in the very late Ottoman Empire at the end of the 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th. And this was, of course, a time of terminal decline for the Ottoman Empire. And Atatur witnessed that at first hand and drew certain lessons, right or wrong, from that. He became convinced that the reason for the failure of the Ottoman Empire was that it was not Western enough. It had failed to keep up over the times with more Western, modern competitors. And therefore, the imperative for the Republic of Turkey, which uh, emerged in 1923, was to become a European-style modern state. And according to Atatur, in that perspective, modernity meant being secular. And it's fair to say, isn't it, that his secularist reforms in the 20s and 30s weren't necessarily willingly received by many of his population, and it was quite an authoritarian turn in Turkish politics. Ataturk's reforms, including the secularizing reforms, were of a draconian nature, and they were completely imposed on the population at large. It was only a small elite of the new republic around Ataturk who actually believed in the necessity and the desirability of these secularizing reforms, which, as you said, more or less culminated in 1937, a year before Ataturk's death, in the formal declaration of Turkey as a lacist state, roughly trying to emulate or at least imitate the French model of lacism, which was well established by then. How well did the secularist reforms survive in the 50 or so years after Ataturk's death? Well, it's true that secularism, or strictly speaking, lacism, as implanted by Ataturk in the first formative two decades, was preserved in the subsequent Turkish constitutions of 1961 and then 1982. However, the broader picture was much more mixed. Uh, For the first 25 or more years of its existence, the Republic of Turkey was actually a one-party state. But from the 1950s, once there was this limited degree of political pluralization in Turkey, religion started rearing its head again, especially outside metropolitan centers. Most people live in villages or at the most in small towns. They are pious people, people of faith, Mm. you know, by and large, overwhelmingly so. And that faith made a return to the public sphere. And its main vehicle was the opposition party. Let's talk about India. The word secular doesn't appear in India's constitution until 1976 during the emergency. But the nation was really secular at its birth 30 or so years later. Tell us about the secular nature of India's democracy. It's really very interesting that the word secular appears very rarely in the discourse of the Indian independence movement. 
It's only after independence that the terms secular and secularism start appearing and become a staple of the official discourse. But during the three decades of mass mobilization against colonial rule in India, led by the Indian National Congress, it was taken for granted that in the free sovereign republic of India that would emerge in due course, all religious faiths would be treated equally and there would be no official or state religion. Perhaps it was taken for granted a bit too much because the reality turned out to be different. You're quite right that the word secular was inserted into the Indian constitution via an amendment during an authoritarian interlude masterminded by the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi in 1976. Mm. However, there was, until the end of the 1980s or so, broad-based agreement across Indian society that this particular ideal of the Indian independence movement, that of equality of all citizens regardless of their religious faith, no official or state religion, should be preserved at all costs. And that it was also intrinsic to the Indian ethos or way of life down the centuries. Yes. Because the subcontinent had been this melange of religious diversity. It's probably worth unpacking a little bit about what secular actually means in those contexts. Most people will be familiar with the idea that it means the state doesn't have an official religion that there should be impartial treatment of different religious groups. But it's more capacious, isn't it? I mean, in India and in Turkey, it has quite a lot to do with dress and caste and treatment of animals and so on and so forth. So give us a few examples of what secularism practically meant for India and Turkey in this post-war period. In the 1920s, the Kemalist regime conducted sartorial reforms. For example, the fez, the cap that was widely prevalent among men in Turkey and indeed in other parts of the Ottoman Empire since the early 19th century, was outlawed. It was banned. And top hats were designated as appropriate headgear. Uh, and it was seriously outlawed, wasn't it? There were real punishments for not yes. wearing the right headwear. Including uh, executions, hangings, for real insubordination shortly after the formation of the Republic in the mid-1920s. In India, of course, although secularism became a staple feature of official discourse from the late 1940s or the early 1950s, religious debates were never far away from the surface. It's remarkable that in the avowedly Indian secular state, one major province after another enact laws formally banning cow slaughter. There are Muslims who challenge these cow slaughter ban laws on two grounds. First of all, you know, freedom of religion. And if it's a truly secular state where there is no official religion, all citizens are equal, then people should be free to eat whatever they like. And the second grounds in which they challenge these cow slaughter ban laws, certain Muslim plaintiffs, was that it interferes with freedom of trade and occupation, which is also guaranteed under the 1950 mm. Indian constitution, that the beef trade is important to their livelihood and they're being deprived of their livelihood. But all of this was turned down by the Indian Supreme Court on grounds of public sentiment on mm. the issue of the holy cow. 
The one point I should make is that the doctrinal principle of separation of church and state, or I should say in these contexts of mosque and state or temple and state, has never been a part of both the Indian and the Turkish conceptions of state secularism. Instead, the Indian and Turkish conceptions, they're quite similar in this way, have two pillars. First of all, no official religion. All citizens are supposed to be treated equally, regardless of religious faith. But the second, even more important pillar in both the Indian and the Turkish cases is that of extensive powers of state intervention in the religious sphere to control and regulate the temple, the mosque, the church, and so on. So in the process, instead of a separation of church and state, as is at least formally the basis of secularism in most Western models, the state and the temple and the mosque got hopelessly entangled with each other in these two cases. Mm. You mention in the book how... There is a a very long-standing tradition within India of religious tolerance. And that creates a kind of precedent on which post-war Indian secularism can be built. Whereas in Turkey, there is, my understanding, no such precedent. And rather, the reformers tended to reach for what seems to me to be quite a French model of laicite, of which is somewhat different from the American model of a wall of separation. Tell us how precedent has influenced secularism differently in these countries. This matter is perhaps a bit more complicated than it seems at first. It is true that everyday tolerance has been a part of the Indian way of life down the centuries. On the other hand, in the last four decades or so of British colonial rule in India, The quote-unquote secular mainstream national movement led by the Congress Party was challenged by two competitors. One was, of course, the Muslim nationalist movement, which led the successful campaign for the creation of Pakistan. But there was a third party in the fray as well, and this was the majoritarian Hindu nationalist movement, whose ideology held that the identity of India as a land and the identity of its people lay in the shared Hindu-ness or Hindutva of the large majority of its population who constituted an organic unity. So yes, we have centuries of everyday tolerance, that ethos. On the other hand, we have very serious political contestations over the very nature of India. Mm. Likewise, you said that there's no precedent for Turkish secularism in the historical past, but I wonder if that's entirely correct or not, because after all, the Turkish Republic was born from the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, which also practiced a pragmatic policy of tolerance of religious diversity. In fact, institutionalized in the millet system, which provided cultural and religious autonomy to the non-Muslim subjects of the empire. So there was this pragmatic, you know, state-led policy of tolerance of religious diversity. However, the form that secularism took in the Kemalist Republic 
was, as we've already discussed, this top-down, draconian, imposed authoritarian form. And I think that led to its undoing. Well, I want to talk about the decline and almost fall of secularism in India and Turkey over the last 25 years now and look at what has happened and, more importantly, why it's happened. And starting with India... The Hindu Nationalist Party is founded in 1951, but it's only really in the 1990s that it becomes politically supreme. Why is it at this point that Indian secularism really finds itself on the back foot? There are two reasons for that. First is the decline of the Congress as India's hegemonic party. From the end 1980s onwards, the established hegemony of the Congress party in Indian politics unraveled. And so a void of sorts opened up. Mm. And this political void was filled by two kinds of forces. One being an assortment of so-called regional parties. These are parties which are typically based in only one of the many states, you know, 28 at current count, of the Indian Union, but are very influential in the state in which they operate. The other party that benefited from the erstwhile fringes was the Hindu Nationalist Party, the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP. Why was the BJP successful in coming in from the cold, if you will? Well, that's a complicated story. But throughout the 1980s, the Congress Party governments, which still ruled in New Delhi and in most of the provinces, were increasingly flirting with majoritarian Hindu nationalist sentiments as an electoral tool. And once the genie was out of the bottle, it could not be put back again. Mm. And eventually, from the early 1990s onwards, it's the BJP that was able to electorally capitalize on the ascendancy of majoritarian Hindu sentiments. I should point out that something very strikingly similar happened in Turkey. We discussed already that the 1982 constitution reaffirmed the centrality of secularism to the Mm. Turkish Republic. However, in the 1980s, the official ideology of that military-led state became something called the Turkish Islamic Synthesis, a marriage of Turkish linguistic and blood ties or descent-based nationalism. And like India, it's no coincidence whatsoever from the 1990s that political Islamists started to gain a lot of traction in Turkey. Yes. I do think it's uncanny, the the parallel there. They're almost working in lockstep. It's probably also worth emphasising there is a significant economic role at play here, isn't there? Yes, there was a complete economic collapse in Turkey in 2001. And that was the final nail in the coffin of the already discredited, at least nominally Kemalist political establishment. But there was another factor at work. The attempted repression of the rising political Islamist tendency by the military and their allies in the high judiciary of Turkey and in the at least nominally Kemalist parties. So, for example, when I went to Turkey for the first time in 1999, the future leader of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, had been forced to step down as the mayor of Istanbul, been banned from politics for a number of years, and even jailed for a brief period, Mm. uh, a few months. For reading a poem, I think that's right, isn't it? For reading a poem by a known Kemalist ideologue of the early 20th century. 
yes. which talked about religious faith, about Islam being at the heart of Turkish yes. identity. It's a very telling little detail, that, isn't it? It's completely alien to many people, the idea that you could be arrested for reading a poem. And it does kind of give a little example of the way in which the secularism in Turkey was very authoritarian and in that regard provoked a religious reaction against it. Yes, and this persecution of Erdogan, who had already emerged as the stormy petrol of the new generation in a political Islamist movement of the early 21st century, was really the last straw. And the persecution not only did not work, but it made Erdogan into a kind of a hero to large masses of pious, devout, rural, and especially small-town Turks, to whom their Sunni Hanafi Islamic faith is a central component of their Mm. identity. You mentioned identity there, and that really does go to the heart of this issue, both in Turkey and in India, and arguably elsewhere, whereby secularism doesn't sufficiently take into account, and sometimes deliberately ignores the religious identity and the way of life and the commitments of large parts of its population in the name of equality and fairness and justice. There are some subtle but significant differences here, I feel, between the Indian and the Turkish cases. In the Turkish case, as we've discussed, the path to secularism meant cultural deracination for the masses of the people of the new Turkish Republic, save a small Europhile elite. And to compound the problem, the secular path of westernization slash Europeanization was literally imposed at the point of a gun Mm. by a deeply authoritarian militaristic state. India is a bit different. Hindu nationalists argue that In India, secularism, both the term itself and the underlying principle of equality of religious faiths, are foreign to Indian culture Mm. and the Indian ethos. They are of Western provenance. And I think we've already sufficiently discussed that this is not true, that an ethos of everyday tolerance, of diversity and accommodation has been deeply ingrained in the subcontinent for centuries and centuries. The other difference from the Turkish case, of course, because unlike Turkey, India was in many ways very flawed, but still a democratic country. Mm. So the Hindu nationalists are also wrong that state secularism was imposed on the Indian people. Mm. It was undoubtedly imposed on the masses of the Turkish people by the Ataturkist elite and their successors. But there was no corresponding draconian authoritarian imposition of secular values or principles in India. Yes, I do think that's a very important point. And as Mm -hmm. you say in the book, the example of Turkey in the 20th century shows that there is no intrinsic connection between secularism and democracy. Uh, You know, Nick, the reason I had so much fun writing this Turkey-India book, well, first of all, these are the two major non-Western examples of state secularism in the 20th century. However, it's also because, uh, as we already discussed, the state secularist models of India and Turkey have certain important similarities. For example, of the powers of state regulation and intervention over Mm. religious bodies and institutions, of the principle of equality of faiths and denominations rather than a doctrine of separation, you know, of church and state. The state has to treat people equally. 
But at the same time, there are also very important differences that the Indian path has been predominantly democratic, while the Turkish path has been largely authoritarian. In Turkey, the Kemalist conception of secularism involved the jettisoning of almost a millennium, actually dating to the pre-Ottoman period, of Islam's history in Anatolia, of regarding that as garbage, essentially, of rubbish, as something that needed to be thrown out for Turkey to become a civilized country. While in India, post-1947 state secularism, flawed as it was in practice, built on a millennium of history of India's evolution as a multi-religious country and of everyday tolerance and accommodation. So how secularists treat the past is of absolute seminal importance here, isn't it? You couldn't have said it better. (laughs) There is one other dynamic I just want to bring out in our conversation. We've talked a lot in the last five years or so in the West of national populism. And there is a dimension of that in all this. There is a recognisable elite popular dichotomy at play in both of these countries. And one of the reasons why we have seen secularism come under so much pressure in Turkey and India and arguably possibly in the US and maybe even in France as well over the last 10-15 years is the sense that secularism tends to be the preserve of the elite, the educated, the university-based, certainly the urban and it is if not necessarily imposed on the rest of the country, there is certainly quite a significant disconnect between that elite group and the rest of us. That's absolutely true. The Kemalist conception of the Turkish national identity, which goes beyond elitism, embracing the West, becoming European, gradually spread, but it never really got the allegiance of more than about one quarter of Turkey's population. Now, in India, the elite was a democratic elite in comparison to the really wasi-authoritarian elite of Kemalist Turkey. Kemalist Turkey lasted for approximately eight decades, from the early 1920s to the early 2000s. But it's true that some elements of that democratic elite, too, were snooty and had this habit of talking down to the masses of the unwashed and uneducated, somewhat like the Kemalists in Turkey. And the Hindu nationalists have capitalized on that snootiness. For example, in the 2014 election, when Modi was challenging for power for the first time, a Congress party politician in New Delhi, who has described himself in the past as a secular fundamentalist, mocked Modi and mocked his humble social origins, the fact that he came from a non-elite background, that he had not had much formal education, and all of that. And that taunt, that mockery, rebounded massively to Modi's advantage. But it did. uh, Because Modi was able to portray himself as the representative of the humble masses against this New Delhi-based snooty and secularist elite. I want to draw our conversation to a conclusion by asking a what's really a very difficult question. I wouldn't want to defend Erdogan 
in Turkey or Modi and the BJP in India, still less political Islamism or, or Hindu nationalism. And if I were a minority in either country, a religious minority in either country, I would much prefer to live in a secular state. But there's part of me that thinks that secularism has really brought this on itself by being disconnected from the deepest values of the electorate, by being particularly authoritarian in Turkey, often by assuming an entire worldview rather than simply being a narrow political strategy, by allying with the elites against the majority and by having a foolish disdain for the positive aspects of historical inheritance, particularly in, in Turkey. So there's many charges you could lay at mm -hmm. secularism's door. And yet I go back to the point that if I were a member of a religious minority in either country, I would certainly want to live in a secular version of that state rather than religious majority version. Mm -hmm. So the question is really, how can secularism be saved from itself? I think the answers are different in the two cases. My sense is that Turkish secularism, grounded in Kemalism, of course, was really doomed in the longer run because of its authoritarianism, its draconian imposed nature on the masses of the people, on most of the population, and also because the secular conception tried a rupture with a millennium of history, which just doesn't work. And so it was culturally deracinated. It never, even after being in existence for eight decades, commanded the allegiance of more than a sizable minority of Turkey's people. So it's only if secularism can be reimagined and practically reinvented in a more democratic version can there be real democratization in Turkey. Otherwise, it's essentially still a contest between the new authoritarianism, which is dominant, and the old authoritarianism, which is very much on the defensive. In India, the choice is actually between democracy and authoritarianism. Because for all the faults and flaws of the Indian secular state post-independence, secularism has been this notion of equality, of equal citizenship, of no state religion, of accommodation of diversity at both everyday and institutional levels, has been an absolutely indispensable central component mm. of the Indian democratic experiment and experience. So in India, the choice is between democracy and authoritarianism, mm. of saving democracy in however faulty and flawed form that it has endured in India down the decades, and open, you know, majoritarian authoritarianism, strongman rule, the demolition of one of the pillars of Indian democracy, tearing the heart out of India's democracy. Whether that happens or not, I don't know, but the stakes are very high indeed. They are. The book is called Secular States, Religious Politics, India, Turkey and the Future of Secularism. Samantra, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Nick, thank you very much. And as a sign of thought, maybe I should have rephrased the subtitle as the futures of secularism. Yes. Because that seems to be what the book is suggesting in the end, that secularism has little or no future in Turkey. But in India, the battle is still on. We can settle with the futures of secularism. Thank you. Thank you again.
Next week, I'll be speaking to Janet Soskis about her books Metaphor and Religious Language and Naming God. The doctrine of creation makes us understand that we are wholly of a piece with the rest of the created order. We all are all creatures. And I think that really is full of a lot of meaning for rethinking not the theology of creation, but the theology of nature that we're now engaged in with such intensity. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>